Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. In this week's episode, we look at the upcoming 2020 US presidential election and evaluate the candidates' policies and track record with regards to Ukraine. This and more on Zakhardani Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. Earlier in the week, um, there was news that the U.S. Senate had supported President Trump's nomination of Keith Dayton as the next ambassador to Ukraine. And I always see it as like kind of crazy that you need Senate approval for like an ambassador. And it kind of shows how different like different like different political systems are around the world. And so I started doing a little bit of digging. I found out that Mr. Dayton is a retired Lieutenant General of the U.S. Army and the Director of the George Marshall European Center of Security Studies and was previously an attache, a defense attache in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And because like the President and Senate have such important sway of how U.S. foreign policy um, is dictated, I thought it'd be good in this episode to dig into the U.S. election and how that will affect Ukraine. And I think, uh, Alexa, the, the first thing I think we should cover is a little bit about how different um, the election, electoral process is in the United States, perhaps compared to countries like Australia or other Commonwealth nations. Um, particularly, uh, there's probably two or three distinct differences, one being that voting isn't mandatory, although that's probably something that's quite unique to Australia. There's yeah. that many countries that do that. But um, obviously, a, ma- a mandatory voting does allow for a better represented voice. Um, and voter participation in the US election is um, relatively limited in comparison to other countries in terms of how many people come out to vote proportionate to the eligible mm-hmm. population that can vote. But doesn't it generally spike when it's a presidential election? Well, it doesn't really... I mean, spike is spike. I mean, when we talk about... Um, yeah. I know nothing beats Australian elections. Well, like 95%. But, but yeah. I think I think well, what we're talking about is that in some of these elections, I mean, you don't even have... You would probably have, a you know, say there's 320 million people as a general population of, Australia, of the US. I know that's not obviously all eligible voters. There's yeah. children and everything there. Participation is... Um, quite a bit more limited uh, because of the fact it's not mandatory. But also, uh, it's fair to say, I think, that in US election system or the, the strategy of the parties when it comes to election campaigns, there is a, a focus placed on voter suppression or at least in a softer term, the idea of discouraging people from voting um, and making uh, actually appealing for a disillusionment from a voter that basically stops them from voting for one side or the other side, um, which is quite, uh, you know, makes it a little bit more complex and multi-layered in terms of um, how you approach those strategies for campaigning. Uh, the other thing that's quite, a, quite different is campaigns for presidential campaigns take quite some time to get to the end of. They, they go for a very long period, uh, essentially starting almost, I'd say, 24 months out, 18 months out, and then uh, getting very intense in the last year. Yeah, because they have the whole primary process, and then from then it gets yeah. steps up. Um, and speaking on, like, the primaries, like, when I was doing the, my digging into, like, you know, how Ukraine's tied up in the U.S. election, I found that the Ukrainian diaspora in the U.S. have, like, umbrella bodies of, like, Ukrainians for Democrats or, like, Ukrainians for Biden, and then you've got, like, Ukrainians for Trump. And I was just like, I've never seen that, like, in Australia where, like, different ethnic groups will come out and, like, actively campaign 
for different parties. Yeah, and actually have yeah, splinters like that as well. I mean, yeah. Sometimes you do have the assumptions that certain communities support certain candidates in different yeah. environments. But I think, yeah, you're right. Actually, that's specific. Uh, I think it's more, again, about there is a um, there is a partisan political activism in the US that's probably a little bit different to the rest of the world where there is this ability, there's this encouragement to actually have you know, this public support for a figure, um, potentially a president themselves or for a party. Um, but um, the other thing that I guess we'll get, we'll delve into a little bit as we go through some of these details is as well, that probably the biggest distinction with the electoral system in the US, uh, especially for the presidential election, uh, compared to what we would do here in terms of parliamentary voting for government, is that there is an electoral college. So there have been several situations in the past, uh, several elections, but more more particularly in 2000, uh, where it was uh, Gore versus Bush, where uh, Bush actually didn't win the popular vote and instead only won the presidential election based on the idea of the Electoral College, which is basically a predetermined um, representation of different states based on how the union formed originally and then obviously how the laws have changed over time. Um, and so to win the Electoral College is a completely different thing than actually winning the popular vote, which is why, again, in 2016, um, the current incumbent, President Trump, won the the presidential election by the um, Electoral College, but didn't win the popular vote by a margin of three million votes. And so there's a lot of questions in the US by from different sides of the fence, of course, but from particularly from some of the Democratic um, supporters of Democratic parties that this is a very unfair and antiquated way of actually, you know, providing a leader and the popular vote should really be the determining factor for this sort of uh, candidate and winner. Um, yeah, that, like it's like it's such a different system to what we have here, though, in saying that, like you can see like the power of like the Ukrainian communities, the Ukrainian community in certain parts of the US. So, for example, in Cook County in Illinois, residents at this presidential election will be, will be able to cast their vote in Ukrainian, which I think is like really cool because yeah. I'm like, I don't think here um, ballots are printed in any other language except English. So I think and it's you just have people who like assist you and read it to you in different languages if you need it. Yeah. That said, I'm not sure. I, like I can't say for certain because I haven't actually seen these things up close, but it does seem that there's a lot of inconsistencies about how these ballots actually appear. I mean, compared to the way the Australian ballot is preferential and the, the clarity of what you can obviously do in terms of one, two, three, four, five in terms of your vote, and then potentially, if you want to, go down to the detail of the huge piece of paper. For the Senate, for the yeah. Senate, <laughs> and the House of if you want to go detailed, you can, or you can just preference by the preferential vote. It seems like it's quite distinctly different. And the other thing that I've, I guess, in the current position that's unusual, I guess what we've seen just in the general news coverage, is that every state seems to have its own legal requirements, yep. its own legislation on a federal election, which to <laughs> me just seems a little bit strange. Like for state elections, yeah, go you ahead. have your own, your, own, your own types of rules, but I'm sure Nathan will get into this a little bit more later um, around you know, gerrymandering and other things. But it's just interesting that different states actually have vastly different rules when it comes to these things. Yeah, because I know some do electronic um, voting, which, you know, there's been cases of, you know, glitches occurring in that. There's the famous the hanging Chad incident in Florida in 2000, um, where if your thing isn't punched all the way through, it's some consider it a valid vote, some consider it a non-valid vote. Um, even in Florida recently, there was talk about their electoral process there. Um, some of them do the ones where you write them on, and it's just like, yeah, each state decides, <laughs> and it's so uh, inconsistent across the state. So that's why there's always these random 
you know, debates and arguments that show up whenever a state is trying to do its trying to do its voting, and there's no like uniform you know, metric to base it on because they all do their things differently. But I think that also like highlights like the like the vastness of America that like you know each state you know is quite proud of the way it does things. Well, I think here like in Australia and like I think a lot of other Commonwealth countries they strive for kind of like a national unity on certain like things like election standards. Yeah, and I mean, arguably, I hear what you're saying, Alexa, but really, I mean, Australia started in very much the same way. There was a collection of colonies um, that, you know, over a territory almost the similar vastness of, you know, of the United States, I guess not, not as many states by, by any measure, not the same divisions of, you know, civil unrest or things like that historically weren't as many divisions in Australia, but I mean, that, that idea of the states and territory and territories versus the federal and the separation of those powers between those different apparatus um, is definitely something that's visible everywhere. But like you said, it's a lot more united when it comes to a federal election in Australia. Um, and I think that's probably what's unusual. Yeah. Well, that goes back actually to the wings of um, Jefferson versus Adams, actually. But yeah, fun history lesson there. Um, so... I think the next thing to uh, look at is why should Americans, um, you know, care about um, Ukraine and why should the U.S. Uh, direct foreign policy towards Ukraine, um, especially given the current situation there? So there have been a number of American uh, generals and people in the uh, U.S. Defense Department that have spoken about why they want this connection with Ukraine and why they want to help them out mil militarily. So one of the big reasons is that because Ukraine is fighting uh, Russian aggression, you know, not just for its own territorial integrity, but um, it also helps as, as an eastern border to NATO because it's keeping that Russian influence further away. And that's kind of like the main, um, we could say, the, uh, the, the eastern front between uh, NATO and uh, Russia at the moment. So countries like Germany, countries like the US and all these other big NATO allies should be helping to back up Ukraine because they, they want to keep their... Um, the NATO influence in that area, especially with Ukraine. Didn't they have a bid to join NATO, Alexa? Yeah, in the early 2000s, I think it was 2006 in Bucharest, mm -hmm. Ukraine and Georgia both applied to join NATO mm -hmm. and were, they weren't turned down, but they were kind of told now is not the right time to apply. Right. And a lot of people link that fa failure of Ukraine to get in as you know, one of the things that did lead up to the current crisis now, because if Ukraine had been in NATO, no one, you know, Russia wouldn't have taken Crimea. Yep. And, you know, the US under Bush at that time quite strongly lobbied for both Ukraine and Georgia to get in. So it was more like the Europeans that stopped Ukraine from getting the votes. Right. So a second reason uh, why uh, the US should be invested in um, this conflict is because they are actually getting um, firsthand experience. In They're, fighting a modern war? Yeah. Not well, just it's against more, terrorists. They're actually getting firsthand experience in Russia's um, military tactics. So, for example, um, they're learning more about how Russia uses electronic warfare, how they use artillery systems, how they do reconnaissance, and how they use their special operations forces. Um, and, you know, in Ukraine. So it's actually giving them a good exposure, or the US, it's giving the US good exposure um, in Russia's actual practical military um, operations. So that's, you know, important information for them to have. And like, I even remember like when the US first started doing like 
full-on military exercises after like the war started a lot of the ukrainian soldiers were surprised that u.s troops were asking them questions Hmm. about how like the war was going because they thought that you know oh we're here to do exercises we're going to be learning from the u.s they were quite surprised that it was more of a two-way street so Volodymyr Yelchenko is a Ukrainian ambassador to the United States. And he had a quote where he was talking to people from the Pentagon. And a member of the Pentagon said to him that they really enjoying, they being the US um, soldiers, they really enjoy learning from the Ukrainians who are on the front line about their own experience. I think that this is very, very valuable. So that was his quote and actually enjoy actually, you know, working with the Ukrainians. So I think it's important as well. Uh, one of the other reasons why uh, America is, um, I guess, participating and, and providing aid to Ukraine is tied back to the, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Budapest Agreement that occurred in 1993, where uh, because after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine was effectively the third nuclear power in the world after Russia and the United States and had a huge nuclear arsenal. And as a part of the agreement to disarm that arsenal, to to surrender that arsenal effectively, um, both Russia and the United States, uh, as parties of the Budapest Agreement, agreed to protect the the territorial integrity of a sovereign Ukraine, so therefore not to interfere with that in any way. Um, And obviously, it's very clear by taking on, I guess, invading Crimea and also having the support of the war in the eastern part of Ukraine. Russia has definitely negated on that agreement. And the US is obviously there fulfilling its part. Um, But this is also part of a larger shift, I think, that we have to talk about as part of this election, why this election is so important for the United States generally, as well as about Ukraine, where uh, for a very long time, the US saw itself as the enforcer of of the world in terms of the Western world. Uh, having you know, trying to enforce standards and norms around the world around how things should happen, trying to keep peace generally after the Second World War and some of the other situations that have happened in proxy wars, whether that be Vietnam, elsewhere. Um, so it is, it is, uh, it is a shift now where that support that has been there for so long is now under question to some degree. Whether that's with the president, the current president, saying that they might withdraw from NATO. Um, whether that's, you know, questioning some of these different um, policies that have been in place for a very long time where the United States has taken active participation in trying to protect countries um, from other oppression and other bullying and aggression. I think it's more that trust issue that other countries have, like countries like Taiwan. Um, I know they train their military based around, I think it's like an eight-hour window, 10-hour, 16-hour window, something like that, because that's how long it takes for reinforcements to come from Hawaii to um, Taiwan. So their whole military strategy is just based around the US support. So that's a massive trust issue if you do not know that the US is actually going to show up if China invades Taiwan. Yeah. And we're talking about things, I think, that were considered even five, five years ago, six years ago, were considered absolutely unquestioned in terms of an allied support of the United States. And certainly Australia is no different. Australia's, um, I guess, defense strategy in the Pacific is very, 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 very heavily influenced by the idea that there'd be American support. I think another reason why the US should care about Ukraine is the sheer number of Ukrainians in America. Um, like we've we've spoken about on previous episodes about how Canada has, is it like what the highest number of Ukrainians outside Ukraine and Russia? Russia. Yeah. In 2018, the number of Ukrainian Americans surpassed 1 million. Even going back 20 years you look at the population of American Ukrainians in different U.S. states. You have New York, Pennsylvania, California, New Jersey, and Illinois as having, you know, the highest numbers. And um, 
you know, it's it's only expected that as time has gone by, those numbers have increased. So America still needs to um, care about Ukraine because, you know, it makes up such a big num- such a big amount of their population. Uh, so with respect to government policy, President Trump's refugee policy, which restricts Muslim access to which restricts Muslim refugees' access to the U.S., uh, has changed the demographic of incoming refugees. So uh, the number of Ukrainian refugees entering has risen 75%, while some Muslim nationalities are banned from travel. Of the 30,000 refugees that entered the U.S. in 2019, 4,451 were Ukrainian, which accounted for 15% of total refugees. Now, in 2016, um, Ukrainians only accounted for 3%. So in, in three years, they've gone up, you know, what, 12%? Like, that's crazy. So that same year, Ukrainian refugees outnumbered Syrian refugees uh, eight to one. So there were eight more Ukrainian refugees than there were Syrian refugees. Uh, with Afghans, it was four to one, Sudanese 12 to one, and Somalis 19 to one. So really, that's, that's, a, that's quite fascinating, Brianna, because I wouldn't have thought that the um, migration would be such a paradigm shift recently where it's quite quite changed in terms of that. That's quite surprising because I guess that's also to some degree happened in Australia. There's been a, you know, a rise in immigration from, or skilled immigration from Ukraine as well. Do you know, I mean, obviously that's refugees, but do you know if the skilled migration, I know it's quite hard to get into the United States with a green card, but do you know anything about that? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. The only thing I was able to find was um, the reason why a lot of Ukrainians were coming in was because of the Lautenberg Amendment. Um, which uh, Congress first passed in 1989 to provide uh, refuge to religious minorities. And so it allowed for people in the US to apply for refugee status on behalf of their relatives abroad. And because they're applying under like religious persecution, there's a lower burden of proof. So it makes it easier for those sorts of refugees to come into America. But I'd imagine, I don't know, any other ways is quite difficult still. Yeah, that's crazy. So I think we should turn to what Ukrainians think of the presidential election and where they kind of sit between Biden and Trump. So a lot of Ukrainians, they view Trump as an unpredictable character in a, in a sense that like they see America helping Ukraine, uh, providing military aid, uh, having bipartisan support in the Senate, right? But Trump's personal views have come into conflict with those um, policies of america and so it kind of puts ukraine in a difficult position of sure like we put you as our closest ally but like your head of state isn't really too fond of us anyway because he's uh trump president trump has called ukraine's horrible people and he's even pushing for russia to have closer ties with the rest of the world um from when they got kicked out of the g8 and a a whole bunch of uh, sanctions were introduced because of the invasion of Crimea. So uh, a lot of Ukrainians believe that before Trump became president, uh, you, the US was their best diplomatic, political and military ally and that they were really trying to fight Russia and helping against the Russian aggression in Eastern Europe. And they viewed that Trump's president has actually lowered their... Opinion? opinion. Yeah, they've lowered their opinion on America and like kind of seeing, like you said with Taiwan, um, they've kind of lost their whole uh, 100% support for the US. They now view the alliance uh, with much more strain than before. So uh, what do you guys think about Trump and Biden? Like, Do you think um, Biden is the better 
candidate for Ukraine or is Trump a more preferred candidate? Oh, just that um, one of the articles I was reading had um, quotes from like different Ukrainian refugees and and a lot of the uh, conservative refugees like or they support Trump because of his conservatism. Um, I know like a lot of Ukraine's political establishment just like in 2016, are kind of banking on a Democrat victory because they see Trump as quite um, a, like a wild character in a sense where they can't predict his moves whilst they saw like Obama as someone predictable that they could do business with. And I think they see like Ob- Biden as a continuation of that. And they know Biden because of his multiple visits to Ukraine. So during the Obama administration, Biden visited Ukraine six times, including on his last overseas trip as vice president. So I think they see Biden as someone that they can do business with. I think it must be difficult for like conservatives in Ukraine because ideologically they would support, you know, the, the Republican and the the right wing um, ideology of that, you know, that Donald Trump has. But at the same time, his administration hasn't been rather helpful to their country. So it's probably a bit of a toss up because you know, from an ideological perspective, they support him. But in terms of his actual policies towards their country, um, he hasn't been that um, effective. So that must be, you know, a difficult line for them to navigate. It's probably a bit more complex than that, even if you think about the fact that really the Republican Party um, of old, back in the Cold War days, back when there was a Soviet Union, um, it, the, the key principal enemy um, that was considered and supported as like the Republicans believed in was the Soviet Union. So Russian aggression today, really, if we look at the history of the Republican Party, they should be even more, um, yeah, arguably more aggressive towards um, stopping Russian aggression than even the Democratic Party would be, mm-hmm. you know, historically. Uh, and so that that's part of, I guess, the challenge. And I think the other thing that's important is that um, – Although, yes, perhaps the conservative view is more aligned to a lot of those people's natural inclination, the, the challenge for Ukrainians right now is that the current administration really doesn't do anything to keep Russian aggression in check. If anything, it's allowing rampant Russian aggression. It's, you know, the president's ignoring um, even willful activity or like putting bounties on the heads of soldiers, US soldiers, <laughs> you know, and not responding to that in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And the Republican Party behind the president not really doing much to condemn either the president or that action separately, you know, in any real measurable way that seems effective. So I think, although, yes, the, the, the conservative view might be a traditional thing, I think that conservatism is not really maybe the it's more a symbolic historical view of what that conservatism is in the US because I think it's changed quite a bit in this particular period of time. So most of Biden's work with um, Ukraine came from his work in the Obama administration, uh, specifically in his work in fighting corruption and him trying to reform the prosecutor general's office uh, of Ukraine. So a lot of this came up during the impeachment hearings um, of Donald Trump because Donald Trump made you know numerous claims about Biden's work with Ukraine. So the Prosecutor General at the time, when when um, Biden first began this anti-corruption work, was Viktor Shokin, and he was supposed to be in um, you know actively pursuing investigations into the company Burisma and you know the various oligarchs that 
you know, a link to that company. However, Shokin was not using his uh, office effectively and was in fact delaying the um, you know any investigations into the company. So what ended up happening was Biden was putting pressure on Poroshenko to remove Shokin, even to the point where he was. Um, holding but not going on not holding back but he was uh threatening that the u.s would not offer any more support to ukraine unless the corrupt prosecutor general was removed which ended up happening so that was an example of biden actually trying to work you know with ukraine and try and clean them up because as we know we've talked about before ukraine's long goal is imf funding and they can't get that imf funding unless you know a lot of these corrupt acts and a lot of these corrupt offices are cleaned up so biden was actually actively trying to help ukraine um in this pursuit uh, against corruption now this all got spun around into um oh biden got him fired because his son was on the border direct you know on the board of burisma but in fact the biden had um, Shokin removed because he wasn't investigating Burisma and he was actually trying to help these uh, oligarchs get away with the different things that they've been um, doing. So Shokin was then replaced by a guy, uh, Yuri Lutsenko. And Biden's quote um, later on, he said that um, Lutsenko was someone who was solid at the time. And that's because Lutsenko ended up becoming corrupt and um, stalling all of these court cases against uh, Burisma. So within 10 months after he took office, Burisma announced that Mr. Lutsenko and the courts had fully closed all legal proceedings and pending criminal allegations against Mr. Zlochevsky and his company. So Zlochevsky is is one of the guys, uh, one of the oligarchs tied to um, Burisma. So the oligarchs that had fled Ukraine as a result of these um, Court proceedings ended up returning to the country, and it seemed that um, Lutsenko's appointment to the prosecutor general's office was actually quite favourable to them. So, in the end, Lutsenko ended up being stepped down and was replaced by Rabashabka. That was after Zelensky. After Zelensky, and Rabashabka is one of the guys we mentioned in uh, Zelensky's first year in office, who you know subsequently then stepped down because of. Um, disagreements he had in certain influential that influential people had in the prosecutor general's office so that was so that's been biden's work in trying to secure um ukraine and try and fight the corruption that is taking place in the country and actually trying to help them you know establish a solid economy establish that imf funding and you know develop out of this kind of this rut that they've been in in terms of um corruption in the country and you know it was pretty effective but um when it comes to the military side of things and arming Ukraine with lethal aid, um, Biden and the, well, the Obama administration was actually the uh, one that actually did not want to do um, the lethal aid to Ukraine. So this goes back to 2015 when the Senate had included provisions in its military policy bill to arm Ukraine with anti-armor systems, mortars, grenade launchers, ammunition to aid its fight against the Russian-backed separatists. And this actually went against the wishes of President Obama because he didn't want to get involved in um, this escalation between the United States and Russia um, by supplying weapons to Ukraine. So this decision offended a lot of Ukrainians at the time. So, guys, do you think that that was a the right move that Obama made, or do you think that he should have supplied the, the lethal aid? Because now Biden is saying that he is going to supply lethal aid to Ukraine. So it's like he's he's basically done a 180 on his position that he had during the Obama administration. Well, I think they should have supplied 
uh, Ukraine with lethal aid. But um, the, the main whole reason is that the U.S. is meant to be uh, the leader in the free of the free world, and they're meant to be protecting democracy. And that's what a lot of uh, other Western countries view them as well. And like Americans always say to themselves, they're pretty much the best is what they say. And I think U.S. should have taken this opportunity to be more proactive in defending democracy, not just in like the Middle East, like they've been doing before, but also in Europe. I think everyone agrees that it would have been, I think, good had Obama provided lethal weapons to Ukraine. However, the other part of it, and I think the, the concern at the time was probably not getting engaged in another proxy war. So throughout the Cold War, many people be aware that uh, outbreaks like Vietnam, the, the Korean War, um, many conflicts became, even Afghanistan in that period of time, became a, a area where um, both the US and the Soviet Union or Russia would exert power in proxy wars, not fight each other directly. Um, and so what was happening with obviously in that time when Obama, when the situation started, I guess in 2013 and then 2014, there was obviously a lot of, um, you know, unverified claims that Russia was obviously behind it. Everyone was very clear that's what was the case, that Russia was was actually putting uh, boots on the ground in Ukraine. But I think there was probably a hesitation there a little bit because of the idea that suddenly then it would be an escalation in terms of two different superpowers, again, having a proxy war on the territory of Ukraine. That said, I think, you know, we mentioned earlier the, the removal of Russia from the G8 as a response to their invasion of Crimea um, and heavy um, economic sanctions, which... Today, I guess, don't get talked about very often, but they have significantly impacted um, the Russian economy. Um, and that that did provide quite a strong response, more consistent with generally um, Obama's you know, foreign policy. And yeah, uh, to sort of say, I guess there's been other situations like Syria where there was a, a, you know, a red line that you know, apparently wouldn't cross, there would be more activity going from Obama. But I think, you know, it, it's, it's clear to see he probably acted relatively consistently with Ukraine in the same way that he dealt with many other issues. Yeah, so um, from the Republican side, the talking point that they used was that Obama completely stopped military aid to Ukraine um, altogether. So there was a quote from uh, Republican Matt Gates who said, Obama put a permanent stop on this military aid to the Ukraine. <laughs> of course he said that. He, he never allowed it to go. So um, that's actually not true. What happened was he he didn't want to... Um, give any more um, lethal aid to them. Specifically, Obama rejected a request from President Poroshenko in 2014, though the White House approved 53 million, a $53 million aid package that included vehicles, patrol boats, body armor, and night vision goggles, as well as humanitarian assistance. So they did still provide assistance. The specific thing that they left out was arming them with Javelin missiles uh, to fight against Russia's tanks i'm pretty sure yes yeah and i think it's important to remember as well that uh obviously the idea of lethal aid to ukraine now um russia's position as an aggressor in the globe is significantly more prolific in the current climate than it was in 2013 2014 obviously there was a huge aggression against ukraine which was the start of this that we can see retrospectively being quite significant but i think when we talk about the active Interference in the Russian, in the American election from Russia that's been proven in 2016, and even these stories now of bounties and things like that. I mean, this has been stepping up over a period of time. So I think, you know, comparing um, Obama and what he did in that period of time versus, you know, I guess the Republicans now is probably a little bit of a, a complicated scenario. 
And I think that brings us to the Democratic Party in general and their opinions in on Ukraine and their policies. Um, so what's positive is that Ukraine has made it into the Democratic Party platform. So there's a sentence in there that says that the Democratic Party will maintain transatlantic support for Ukraine's reforms and territorial integrity. So I think that's quite like a positive thing that um, that Ukraine has made it into like their platform. And like Biden has been quite strong, as like you've said, Nathan, in supporting Ukraine. So I think that's we've kind of set the scene of what the Democrats and Biden are promising. And I think now we should move on to look into Trump's relationship with Ukraine and what he and the GOP are promising to do for about Ukraine if they win re-election. So controversially in this election, election, Trump hasn't actually released a new platform and neither has the GOP. So the GOP is running on its 2016 platform, which mentions Ukraine four times and on the same lines as the Democratic Party, like, you know, supporting Ukraine's territorial integrity, providing support to Ukraine's army, um, you know, pro-Western reforms in Ukraine. So that like it's all good news on that front. Whilst Trump's um, own re-election campaign has released a vague list of 50 dot points, I'm pretty sure, which kind of more focus on domestic issues. I think that kind of shows you that, like, that's his priority to win re-election. Yeah, I know on one of the sites that's funded by his campaign, they mentioned the things he had done in the past for Ukraine, like the $250 million uh, aid package and the Javelin missiles, but it doesn't really go into what he plans for the future. I just wanted to start with uh, Trump's relationship with Ukraine, which is best highlighted by his impeachment earlier this year. Um, So impeachment is a process that allows senior figures in government to hold other officials to account if they're suspected of committing offences while in office. And uh, over the history of the United States of America, only three presidents have ever been impeached. Um, So the other two were Andrew Johnson in 1868, Um, for, among other things, dismissing his Secretary of War against the will of the Congress, and then later Bill Clinton in 1999 for the Monica Lewinsky affair. Oh, and Richard Nixon was going to be impeached and then resigned because he knew it was coming, so, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But were were the other two actually, like, fully impeached? No, so no president's ever been removed from office. They were impeached but not removed, yes, correct. So the closest was... Well, it would have been Nixon if it went through. Wasn't it Johnson? He was only one vote away from being... Yeah, Johnson. Yeah, it would have been Johnson because yeah. Johnson was um, Lincoln's vice president, and he was actually because Lincoln was a Republican, but uh, Johnson was actually a Democrat, and so he was wasn't particularly liked at the time. So yeah. Uh, but in this circumstance, Trump was accused of two things. Uh, he was accused of seeking help from Ukraine's government to get himself re-elected this year, uh, which included allegedly holding back millions of dollars of military aid to Ukraine and then dangling the release of this aid, but also dangling a a White House visit for Zelensky. So he's like, oh, cool, White House visit. (laughs) As part of this, he also... Um, he's also accused of pressuring Ukraine to dig up damaging information on Joe Biden and his son Hunter, who was earning a lot of money as the director of a Ukrainian gas company. Burisma, specifically. Yeah, that's the one. It always comes back to Burisma. (laughs) (laughs) So the second thing that he was accused of was obstructing Congress by refusing to allow his staff to testify at the first impeachment hearings. So a two-thirds majority is needed to convict the president and remove them from office. And um, Trump was 
acquitted on both accounts. So it was 52 to 48 to acquit on the charge of abuse of power and then 53 to 47 acquit on obstruction of Congress and maintaining the trend that no US president has ever been impeached. Uh, then fully impeached. Fully impeached. Oh, removed from office, Impeached and removed, yeah. Impeached and removed. Um, what I found interesting and what I wanted to mention was like two days after he was acquitted, President Trump fired two witnesses who testified in the impeachment inquiry. Shocker. <laughs> well, I know the White House position was at one point, even if you are subpoenaed to testify, do not show up. That was the position. Yeah. And it was like... They played hardball. Oh, yeah, but... The whole thing in America was there was always this system of honesty. Like, even though the law was, you know, written in a specific way, there was that etiquette that you recuse yourself if you're close to a case or you show up if you're um, subpoenaed for something. But Trump's just pushed the boundary or pushed this the Constitution to its limits in what he can do. He fired Jeff Sessions because he recused himself because he wanted an attorney general who wouldn't recuse himself. So that's why he gets someone like William Barr, who's just, you know, running roughshod over everyone's um, civil liberties in America and, you know, releasing, uh, doing, uh, acquitting people that were allies to Trump while locking up other people like pro for protesting. It's, it's massive hypocrisy and yet it's no one impeaches no one does anything because there's this, still this thing of oh it's etiquette you know you, you know what, what do we do he, you know he should be doing this and he should be doing that yeah but he's not yeah. get him out get him out <laughs> um yeah trump has pushed a lot of the unwritten conventions that have governed western democracies 100%. for a very long time like it's crazy so like on one hand you have trump being impeached over trying to you know do a quid pro quo with ukraine but then he also you know starts selling javelin missiles to ukraine and island class patrol boats to ukraine's navy so some see it as cynical that like you know he was doing it more to show that oh no like i do support ukraine but um others see it and him it's just him trying to cover his tracks but either way like ukraine has gotten like the lethal weapons it's needed mm. and it, like uh the military's like quite the ukrainian military is quite happy and they want to keep expanding that relationship yeah and biden's pledged to continue that so i guess with biden you get the lethal aid plus trust as opposed to quid pro quo. We encourage all listeners in the US who haven't registered to vote to go register now and either vote early by mail or vote on election day if you feel safe to do so. Let's make sure that the Ukrainian American voice is heard. In the news this week, the Special Commission into the recent AN26 disaster has released its interim conclusions. In the report, they state that one of the engine control system units failed and there were gross violations in preparations for the flight and its performance. On October 6, Ukraine commemorated those killed at a ceremony on Svoboda Square in Kharkiv. President Zelensky has paid an official visit to the United Kingdom, meeting with government and business leaders and members of the royal family. The UK has committed £1.25 billion to upgrade Ukraine's navy. Members of the European Parliament have penned a letter to the Servant of the People's Party, warning them that certain officials and oligarchs may lose visa-free access to the EU if reform initiatives continue to backslide. October 8 was International Pierogi of Ranike Day. Let us know what your favourite type of Rannik is by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content.